again, a very warm welcome to our latest generation podcast. And as I've been saying the last few podcasts, we are all in lockdown. So the sound quality isn't exactly studio quality that we have been used to. But we do have a studio quality guest today. And my guest is Peter Turnbull. Peter, welcome. Thank you, David. Very nice to be with you. So are you familiar with generation podcasts? Uh, yes, I think uh, I think I've listened to every single one. So, um, a long time listener, first time caller. I Excellent. Yeah. Well, if you can furnish proof, we may give you a prize for that. Being one of our most loyal listeners, I get a golden star. That'll be good. Excellent. Are you a fan of podcasts? I yeah, I am. I listen to quite a few podcasts, and um, we have. Uh, Five children who are delightful and make a lot of mess. And my job at the end of every day is to uh, tidy up the kitchen. So uh, I listen to lots of podcasts when I'm tidying the kitchen at night. Is there any particular genre? I mean, do you listen to Christian stuff, non-Christian stuff? Um, What's the sort of stuff you like to listen to? Bit of, bit of a mixture. Generation, obviously, top of the list. Absolutely. Um, but, uh, yeah, everything from uh, stuff on... Uh, film or TV through to stuff on church revitalization, stuff on theology, um, church history, all sorts of things. Great. Okay, a lot of our viewers will maybe have heard your name, but they don't quite know who you are. I know that you come from the northeast of England, but you certainly don't sound like Gaza. Um, tell, us, <laughs> tell us a little bit of your story, how you became a Christian. Yeah, so um, born and brought up, I usually say Newcastle, but actually Whitley Bay, so on the coast in, in the northeast, northeast of England. Um, taken to church uh, as a child all my life um, from a, a Christian family. Um, we went, when I was about four, I think, my, my parents made what was probably a difficult decision to move us from a small local church um, to a much bigger um you would call it conservative evangelical Anglican church in uh, in Newcastle itself, Jesmond Parish Church. Um, some will have heard of it. Yeah. Um, and I was brought up there, great teaching, you know, lots of youth work, children's work, um, the whole range of stuff. Um, and I went and it was fine, but I wasn't interested really at all. My life was about um, football mainly and music and, um, the thing that really changed it for me was in my mid-teens, I started going to some Christian summer camps, similar, I suppose, to the free church youth camps that's, uh, that we run now. Um, and I actually don't remember anything about what I was taught or much that the leaders said to me. But at those camps, I met um, other young people um, for whom their faith was it was real and living. They, they did things which to me seemed quite strange, like they, they prayed and read the Bible when no one was making them, and they seemed to have a kind of living connection with God. So that was the thing that began to, I suppose, awaken me to the fact that I wasn't a Christian um, and that these people had something I didn't. And I suppose from that point onwards, I went back to my, my home, my family, my church, and I began to listen more. Um, and um, uh, the Lord began to, to convict me of my sin and bring me to faith in Christ over a period of, of probably two or three years in my late teens. 
Mm-hmm. What about growing up in, in a church like Jesmond? I mean, we call it JPC. Uh, did you have a sense that this was a lively church or was it just an ordinary church? Yeah, definitely a lively church. Um, you know, whilst I wouldn't have been a Christian, I don't think, in my earlier days, I certainly didn't resent going there. There was lots of things that were interesting and exciting, lots going on. So, um, you know, it wasn't a bad place to be um, at all. And, you know, I suppose I've, I've since become very grateful for all that I was uh, taught and all that I imbibed from the scriptures as a child, even though I didn't seem particularly interested at the time. Okay. Now, you you pastor um, a church up in Burghead, which is in Murrayshire, which is in the you know, the north north part of Scotland. Not every one of our listeners knows where that is. Um, Burghead, I guess, is like most churches in the UK today. Would you agree with that, or is it a little bit different? Well, I mean, there are, I suppose there are culturally unique things wherever you are. But, yeah, I suppose we're fairly uh, typical. We're not enormous. Um, we're pretty small. Um, we're in a small village. We live with all the usual day-to-day issues and struggles. So I certainly think the church I'm in now is is a lot more typical, for yeah. good or ill, of most UK churches than the places that, that I grew up in. Yeah, because, uh, I mean, we maybe come to this later, your sort of two big church experiences previous to that uh, were Jesmond and Christ Church in Fullwood and Sheffield. I mean, these are quite similar churches, big conservative Anglican churches. Um, Do you get a little bit, I don't know what the word is, frustrated that people gravitate towards celebrity churches? Well, I shouldn't use that word celebrity churches, but, you know, big, well-resourced churches, when most churches in the UK are like Burghead? Um, yes and no. I suppose my I've seen it from both sides of, of the tracks in, in, in many ways. Um, I think, well, the size of a church is, is not necessarily an indicator of its health. So there's, you know, people can have a chip on their shoulder either way. You know, our church is small. Um, everybody's leaving, so we must be doing something right. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure that's that's necessarily yeah. true. Um, I think big and small churches can ha- can be healthy or unhealthy, um, and they have different strengths and weaknesses. Certainly, it's possible that um, that folks are driving past small churches on their way to a big church that could do with their presence and help and support. Um, but equally. Sometimes I think small churches can can look to big churches uh, with a sense of entitlement. Send us your people, give us your stuff. And actually, it's not easy being in a big church. You do have wider responsibilities, um, but there are a lot of demands on your resources. I think sometimes folks in small smaller churches think it's a great panacea and an easy place to be in a larger church, which is actually not not the case. Yeah, church is a bit like an ecosystem, isn't it? You know, we've got all sorts of churches, large, small, and, you know, you've got resource churches like Jesmond and, and Fullwood, and you've got, you know, medium ones, and, you know, hopefully we're all working together. Now, um, can you tell us just a little bit about your sense of calling to Burghead? You were, you were on staff, you were the music guy at Fullwood. How did you end up in Burghead? 
<laughs> it's a good question, and, and part of the reason is your fault, David. But I'll, I'll come yeah, to this. yeah. Um, I so I'm married to Morag, and she's from Elgin, which for those who don't know, is just down the road from from Burghead. So Murray was home for her, and her parents uh, still live there. So when we were, when we lived in Newcastle and in Sheffield, we we would come to to Murray on holiday. It was a it was a free holiday, which was not to be turned down. And so we got to know the the area pretty well. And I suppose we began to see that um, you know whilst there were some good things, some good gospel things going on, there weren't nearly enough. Um, and that because we you know we'd had a, a privileged existence in many ways, we'd been taught a lot and gained a lot from the churches we'd been in. And uh, I suppose both Morag and I began to think, how could the church situation change for good uh, in, in Morrisshire? And I suppose we got to a point of thinking, well, we ought, because of our connection here, um, if we could be some use somehow, we ought to be at least willing to consider it. And that led to a long process. Um, I'd heard of, uh, of Smithton Church, which is where, where David, you were the minister, as you know, for a long time. And uh, I didn't know you, David, but I got in touch out of the blue and said, listen, here's our situation. Here's what we're thinking. What do you think? And that led to a long conversation. And you pointed me specifically um, to the church in Burkhead, which was vacant and had been for some time. So, And I think your first question was, where is Burkhead? Yeah, there, yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. Yes, <laughs> embarrassingly. I have been there once, but I, I couldn't really remember it. So, yeah. Thankfully, Morag knew where it was. She did. She did. She laughed at me too. Okay. Um, so, I mean, you almost used the language of mission there, um, a sense of calling. Is it fair to describe it in these terms? Absolutely. I mean, I think wherever we are, um, we have been commissioned by Jesus to be on on the mission of of making disciples. So. In one sense, wherever we are, big church, small church, um, I think we must arrive with a sense of, of mission to take the gospel out. Um, you know, large parts of our nation now and large parts of the culture of our nation are thoroughly um, de-Christianized. The UK is uh, a mission field in one sense like any other. Um, so a sense of mission, a sense of hopefully godly ambition and drive to make the gospel known, I think, is absolutely essential, wherever you are. Yeah. Now, uh, Burghead, we call that in common parlance a, a revitalisation um, church. Uh, the, when you got there, you know, I think the positives were there were folk who really were burdened and wanted the church to grow. They were grieved that it had declined. Uh, the folk who, who you went to, they were, you know, fairly elderly but they were positive can, can you just outline maybe the top three areas of revitalization for you when you look to parkhead um you say look here there's three things that maybe have to be done how, how would you itemize these that's a great question i mean when you revive someone like that as you say there were some positives which is right but you look at a situation which in you know, in human terms, seems seems hopeless. Um, very small, shrinking membership, very elderly. So it, it it is it's overwhelming when you arrive somewhere like that. You know, it's it's in one sense it's hard to find three things that needed to be done. There, there are probably like three hundred. Yeah. But I suppose one of the key things 
um, well, was Sunday services. You know, that, that by no means is the whole of the life of the church. But we really tried to make Sunday services um, places where we, we taught the Bible, yes, fully and faithfully teaching the whole counsel of God. Um, we, we in no sense wanted to, um, to be lightweight. Um, but we wanted to do everything on a Sunday with an eye on the fact that the, we, we want people to be present there who don't yet know, know the Lord. And so to do things in the way that is um, accessible and intelligible. Um, and, uh, you know, for example, I just make it my habit to every week when I stand up, and not, not that there are any physical people there at the moment, but I, I always welcome guests, even if I know for a fact there aren't any there. Because yeah. I want to sow the culture that we, we do expect our church family to be inviting friends. Great um, point. Yeah, so Sunday services was key. I think it's interesting, um, one of the guys who's one of our elders now, who is, uh, has been in the church for a long time, said, said a few weeks ago, one of the key things that's changed is um, we're all working at this now. That's maybe not something necessarily I would have put my finger on, but I suppose that's just a culture that I'd imbibed, that, that a one-man ministry um, just won't do. And what we need is... Um, you know, Ephesians 4, we need to equip the saints for the works of service. And so I think that would be a second thing. We now have so many different people um, involved in the life and ministry of, of the church. And actually, many of the people who were already there, who actually had been very well taught over many years, but perhaps never had been um, empowered is perhaps the wrong word, but I'll use it in there. We had never quite been empowered to think that they could serve and give and teach in, in different ways um, and encourage and disciple others. Um, so Sunday services, a sense of collective uh, endeavor. Um, and beyond that, certainly prayer. And, um, you know, I, I often say that my first few months in Burkhead, my prayer life has never been as good mm -hmm. as it was then. Um, because I suppose maybe it's a bit like the coronavirus situation. You know, you, you see the, the limit of your own resources. You know, there are things here that I am powerless to change. And that, that makes you call on God. Yeah. So you worked a lot on the Sunday services. You've got the Bible there. You're preaching the Bible. You've got body ministry. You've got prayer. Describe the building then and now. And just a little comment on the question are buildings important yeah the, the building derelict would be too strong but it was virtually derelict um not only was it uh, dark dank austere uh, freezing all boiling um, and unwelcoming it was also in bad condition really really damp it stank there was literally wallpaper peeling off the walls in large quantities um so a church, re a church building project in my first year there was not top of my list of things to do. Um, I, I didn't want to give the message that I thought ministry was all about buildings because I don't think it is. And yet with every week that passed by, you could almost literally see the building getting worse and you could see the noughts being added on to what it was going to cost to refurbish. So I thought we've got to do something. Um, and, uh, Perhaps, hopefully with faith, perhaps also with some naivety, um, we set out on a project. And 
uh, without giving every detail of the story, in God's amazing provision, um, money was was raised and given, um, and the building now has gone from being um, awful to being really great. Um, yeah. Contemporary, warm, welcoming, flexible, all the rest of it. And I think that, obviously, that that's useful. We can move the building around and do different things. But I think the biggest thing about the building project, actually, is something slightly intangible. It's just changed the atmosphere of everything that we do in there um, in, in a helpful way. Um, so it's hard, to, it's hard to quantify exactly, but everything we do has a different feeling, and it marked a new beginning in the life of the church. And um, I, I cannot see um, how we could be where we are without the building having been transformed. Okay, so you think it is important to have a, a nice building? I think if you can, it's a good. It's not essential, and it's not essential to have a building at all. Um, although I've got a lot of friends who are church planters, um, and it can be very, you know, those of us who have the the, the work and the labour of maintaining and improving buildings can sometimes think, oh, wouldn't it be great just to get rid of the building and meet in the community centre? Now, that doubtless brings other benefits, um, but all of my church planting friends wish they had a building for the permanence and the presence in the community and the practicality. So a good building, I think, is not to be, not to be sniffed at at all. Yeah, it seems to me, you know, the full talk about the difference between revitalization and planting, it seems to me that you, you kind of have a, a planting mindset. Um, can you comment on this sort of planting versus revitalization thing? Do you think they have more in common than they have apart? I, I think they have loads in common. Um, I think we tend to be too divisive. It, funnily enough, it's the same with the big church, small church. Thing. Yeah. I think sometimes people think, oh, that worked in a big church, it will never work here. And I think those differences, as long as you're sensible, I think those differences are overstated. So, yes, revitalization, church planting, you know, somewhere like uh, like Birkhead or many other places, um, you know, the decline is is near terminal. And, the, the you know, the, the mindset that is needed uh, is the mindset of, of a radical uh, new approach with new energy and new prayer um, and you know certainly you want your congregation to think like church planters to be on mission to the village town city that you live in so I think there are huge similarities and you know I do sometimes listen to church planting podcasts to go back to podcasts so I think these I think there's huge crossover and certainly one of the things that that uh, that frustrates me more than anything else um, is when church planting and revitalization are, are pitted against one another as if we were somehow on different teams, you know, competing for resources. Um, you know, we're on the same team. Um, so we need to get rid of that, that, that animosity that can sometimes, re, you know, exist between, between these two. Yeah. Uh, okay, our, our conversation, as usual, in the Generation podcast is kind of random. Here we are, we are in Scotland, we are in week two of a lockdown. It's certainly the Free Church of Scotland in common with, I think, virtually every other church in the UK has stopped um, physical services. How have you guys coped? Because I imagine you weren't the most tech-savvy uh, group of people. You didn't have a big online presence. So how have the last few weeks been for you guys? Well, strangely, I mean, in one sense, that's true. Um, 
although our congregation has changed a fair bit in the last five years, so we're much more multi-generational now. And actually, we'd, we'd all, before any of this, um, this COVID stuff happened, we'd actually worked very hard at, at building an online presence, particularly on Facebook. Um, if it doesn't happen on Facebook in Burghead, it doesn't happen. So we worked hard to have a presence there. And, you know, a lot of older people are, are, on, are on Facebook and these things um, as well. So, I mean, I was thinking about this. Uh, it, it's funny. I, um, I have five children who are now all off school. I've also moved house in the last week. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I don't know that I've done a particularly brilliant job. Um, but I, w- one of the things that, that we did, do, and this relates back to the whole having a body ministry, um, as soon as it was clear that, that lockdown was, was coming, um, straight away we got together a WhatsApp group of all the key leaders in our church. And that's elders, but also ministry leaders in different areas. And um, over the course of a couple of days, we bashed out on that WhatsApp group, what are the challenges? What are we going to do? How are we going to work this? Um, And uh, that was really helpful. My feeling was, you know, this is a hugely uncertain time. One of the key things here is to... um, communicate well and quickly with the church family and also with our village who are listening into what we say yeah. about what how we're going to respond so we tried to react quickly and um, with a kind of coordinated group bringing in ideas from different people that was one that was one key thing i think um, and i suppose from there i think one of the things that's clear is that you know this is not going to be a, 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 a sort of three or four week thing you know, we're in this for months. Yeah. Um, and so we thought, okay, we need to react quickly and get things in place. But we also have time to develop things. So on the technology thing, you're right. The, the last thing I wanted to be doing was to be saying to our congregation, um, especially to older folks, here's like three or four or five different bits of technology you now have to grasp all at once. Um, we, we decided, or my instinct was to say, okay, let's focus on Sunday services to begin with. Um, and let's try and get a, a live stream service that works, that's not too long, that people can access. Um, and if we get that done well, then let's start to move on, you know, in later weeks to introducing other things, perhaps using other technologies, um, so that we try and bring everyone with us and not leave anyone behind. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that I know I knew that you guys had actually been online for a few months before this. Uh, it seems to me that the churches that are coping best are churches which are, I wouldn't say future proof, but, you know, are anticipating issues, uh, are slightly ahead of the curve to use kind of in language. And, you know, just looking at the problems as opportunities. So, you know, it didn't come as as much of a, a blow to you because you already had that online presence. Fascinating that you said that in Burghead, you know, Facebook's a big thing in, in a village. Um, have you got any access to, to your stats? Have, you, have your numbers gone up since you went online? Yes, hugely. I mean, interestingly... Wow. Uh, our vision as a church is to grow to be an all-age church of 100 disciples. Um, and, uh, I mean, our normal Sunday attendance of late Sunday morning has grown to be around 60 to 70. 
Um, I reckon our, our live streaming figures are probably about double that. Um, so, and that's those who watch it live. That doesn't count those who watch it back afterwards. Um, I've had uh, a number of interactions with people, including one lady I met on the street from a safe distance, I should say, <laughs> the other day, who said to me, I would never have come to your church, um, but I've been watching online. Thanks very much. Um, so I think it's interesting, you know, we, we often, and I've read various things that, uh, various articles in the last week that, that, that I think I would say speculate on what's going on. Why is God doing what he's doing? Um, you know, is this an act of, of judgment? And listen, I think we need to be alive to those possibilities. But it seems to me, what, what do we know that God is doing now? We know this is the day of grace and the time when, between the first and second comings of Christ, when we're commissioned to take the gospel out. And so one thing it is definitely appropriate to try and do is to use this, as you say, David, as an opportunity to try and take the gospel to, to new people in new ways. Absolutely. And I mean, when it's over, when the dust settles, as one of my work colleagues said, you know, when we're leaving the office together, we'll see you on the other side, uh, which wasn't very cheerful. But I think one of the things that we'll have to do as a denomination is, you know, just sit down and saying this is a great opportunity to push the reset button, um, not in terms of, of theology, but just in terms of you know what has this taught us what we learn missionally through this so i'm really looking forward to that reset process but again you know i'm hoping most folk will come and board that uh, because we there will be a new normal we cannot go back uh, there is a sense in which things have have changed have you got a view on that yeah it's an interesting thought what what will it be like when this is over god willing um yeah, I think, I mean, one of the things that's in my mind, and, you know, we don't say this with any relish, but it, it, it concerns me that there may be congregations who may not even survive this. Mm. Um, there are certainly businesses, institutions of all kinds that won't survive this crisis. Um, you know, we're desperate that congregations would see it as an opportunity and might actually thrive through it. Um, but yes, there'll be a new normal, a chance to reflect and, you know, when your hand is forced in, in this way with things that are beyond your control, it does force you to reflect on what's essential and what's not and what's important and what's not. Um, so I don't, I don't know what the new normal will be, um, but it, it, it won't be the same, which is not to say we'll abandon things that are essential, like meeting face to face. You know, we all yeah. long for that to be the case. Sure. Um, so tell us uh, a little bit, just briefly, about your technical setup. I imagine it's somewhat minimalist, involving uh, an iPhone, and uh, I don't know. Tell us, how, how do you do it? It is very simple. Um, I, I, I bought only one thing to make our Sunday streaming possible, and that was a little uh, rickety six-inch-high tripod for my iPhone off of Amazon for seven quid. Um, other online retailers are available. Um, yeah, I mean, we do it in the church building at the moment. Um, we, I mean, I have a table with a stack of box files on, with a tripod on, with my iPod on, with my iPhone on. Um, we, uh, we, we add or remove box files to add height or reduce it. 
Um, we have a wee uh, a monitor screen which displays various stuff, um, and I stand next to it. So it's it, it is simple. Um, I did have the, the the benefit of a few years ago, actually back at Jesmond Parish Church, being involved in um, the setting up of something called Clayton TV, which is a kind of yeah. TV production unit based there. So I had a bit of experience. I was taught a few things. Um, and actually, it's like most of these things, you know, actually, it's not the gear. You can have all the gear and no idea, as people say, um, with a little bit of know-how, how to get light into a lens, how to frame a shot, a few essentials like getting the camera at eye height, getting some decent audio. You can do a few essential things well. Yeah. You actually don't need a whole lot of equipment these days to do something that's pretty reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, any, any listeners, you can see the fruits of Pete's labours on, if you go to Burghead Free Church on Facebook, you will see, yeah. and you will see even uh, the glimpse of the church. Um, in keeping with the randomness of the Generation podcasts, I'm really fascinated by music and, and worship and praise. I know that that's one of your interests. You were um, on staff at Christchurch Fullwood in Sheffield as uh, the music guy. Um, again, was that... <laughs> Tell me, first of all, what do you think the essence of good sung worship is? I guess there's a big difference between, again, a normal church, with Burghead Free Church, 60, 70 people, like most UK churches, mm-hmm. and a big resource church. Just tell us what you think the essence of good worship is, irrespective of the size and resources of a church. Yeah, well, the essence is the same. As you say, the essence is the same wherever you are. Um, And, well, there are are those key passages in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5, which which both speak about um, the the, the essence being um, praise and thanks to God. and the edification and encouragement of believers. So we sing on the one hand, because God is, is utterly worthy of praise. Um, and we, we also sing for the good of our brothers and sisters who need to be um, you know, spoken to in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and um, to, be, to be taught and admonished um, the word of God as we sing it um, to, to one another. So in, in, for both of those, the size of your church is irrelevant. That's the essence. And for both of those, again, regardless of the size of your church, um, it seems to me that there is a priority on, on the human voice and on singing. And that music, um, if it's there, is there in, in a supporting role. And I would say that if you have one musician or 20, the role is the same, to encourage the people of God um, to sing both to God in praise and to one another in admonishment, teaching and, and encouragement. And that essence just doesn't change. That's, that's really interesting. Now, I noticed, you know, when I go to Burghead, and it's been my privilege to preach there, that you, you mean you've got everything. There's sometimes an accompanied psalm, sometimes an accompanied psalm, sometimes a, a traditional hymn, sometimes a contemporary um song do you have any personal preferences or do you think that as someone who designs the liturgy of a church personal preferences don't come into it um, i do try to leave my personal preferences at the door 
Um, that goes along with the fact that, that the singing of a church is for the edification of the whole body of God's people. It's not about the gratif- gratification of my musical tastes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd also and you know, say that to folks uh, in, in the pew, not that we have pews, but you know what I mean, um, that the, the church is not a gig. Like, we've got nothing. I love a gig. You know, go to a concert mm-hmm. when COVID's over. Um, enjoy your favourite music. Have on your favourite playlists at home. Enjoy them. Be grateful to God for the wonderful gift of music. Have your own tastes. That's absolutely fine. But just understand that that Sunday worship is not a gig. It's not there for the, the gratification of anyone's personal tastes, but for the praise of God and for the building up um, of the body of, of God's people. Um, I think some variety in that is useful. Um, that, that reflects the variety of, of the body of God's people. We're an all-age family, um, and so variety is, is appropriate. And variety also helps to make the, that point to people that this is not a gig. And so I often used to say, I've not said it for a while actually, but I used to say to folks, I hope you come to our church and find some of our music and singing that you really like and is to your taste. And I also hope you come and I really hope you find some things which you don't really like and aren't to your taste because that that's a, that then is a moment of discipleship which will teach you that it's not all about you. It's about Jesus and it's about his church. Um, yeah. These are great points. I mean, um, the Free Church of Scotland, as you know, um, moved its position in worship in 2010. I think now 80% of our congregations are, are hymn singing, but we're not exclusive hymnody. Um, but we're not exclusive psalmody. As you've been taken into the world of, of psalm singing, at least one item of praise in, in our public worship has always got to be a psalm. Have you found that a liberation or a restriction? A huge liberation, a huge benefit. Um, I would never want to go back. I think, um, you know, we, well, we know those verses in, in Ephesians to speak of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And um, whatever you make of that list, it definitely includes psalms. And um, most of my earlier life was a bit starved of psalms, at least in the kind of public uh, singing of them in worship. Um, there's huge richness. Uh, there's a huge diversity of themes which don't get picked up in you know, other contemporary styles. Um, it, it's uh, it, it's been of huge benefit to me, and uh, one of my one of my hobby horses, if you like, now is to try and encourage churches who are not psalm singing or not psalm singing very often, and um, to find ways that they can sing psalms in a way that works for them in their in their context. So I'm hugely enthusiastic about promoting psalm singing all over the place. Do you think there is a way in which we can weave psalm singing into the wider evangelical church? Um, I mean, it seems to me that folk are perhaps not into 1650 a cappella versions. I mean, there's 150 songs there. Psalms are sung in so many different ways. Is there any way in which you've found that can really encourage uh, wider evangelicalism to take up uh, psalm singing? Yes, absolutely. And, well, I can say this because I had no part in it, but I think the, the Sing Psalms book um, that the Free Church have put together is, is, has the potential to be a great gift to the wider yeah. church. You know, there you have um, psalms set in, in great rhyming poetry. I would say much of it much better than the 1650 version um, in kind of, you know, normal 
21st century NIV style language, which is really accessible. It's all in normal meters that every church uses anyway to sing various hymns and songs to. You can use kinds of known tunes and, you know, accompaniments that you already do. So funnily enough, I was a couple of years ago, I was, um, I was at the Keswick Convention. I was, um, I was leading the band for the, in the youth tent at the Keswick Convention and um, we, we sang a few psalms and, uh, you know, which was completely alien really to everybody else in the band and to most of the young people who were there. And it was a great experience. And um, a number of guys went away and, and I know from the band actually have, have begun psalm singing using sing psalms in their churches so i think there's huge potential and that's a great resource yeah great now um you've kind of moved tribe slightly from anglicanism to presbyterianism uh if you think of it they're i don't know brothers cousins they're pretty similar in, in many ways have you found the change difficult not really um no i think I, I, well, I mean, Anglicanism is such a broad term. It's, it's, you know, it's perhaps worth defining even the tribe within the tribe, as it were, because Anglicanism can mean almost anything. Um, but if you come from uh, a conservative evangelical background, which holds to the thirty-nine articles of religion, and into a, a Presbyterian Westminster Confession environment, um, it's not that there are no differences. Obviously, there's a difference in ecclesiology. That's maybe the, the most obvious one. Um, but for me, it's been an easy, an easy transition. That's partly theological um, because it's not a great move, actually, in, in, in many ways. Um, it's also partly personal because I, you know, I came into a denomination with um, friendly people, even you, David, um, <laughs> who, who welcomed me warmly and uh, great relationships in our presbytery. Um, folks who helped me to adjust and fit in. And, and also, you know, as well, coming from the Anglican Church, which of course is, is, um, has all kinds of rifts and disagreements. Um, now, I wasn't ordained in the Anglican Church, so I wasn't ever directly involved in, with bishops and synods and all the rest of it. But, but it was all, you know, I, I knew many who were, and it was difficult and painful and divisive. And actually to come into a church that, that is basically on the same page, um, you know, to go into a presbytery meeting with brothers who uh, all basically believe the same thing and are doing the same work, um, for me, was really refreshing. So it's been an absolute delight, um, and I'm not being paid to say that, uh, to come into the free church. <laughs> I mean, one of the similarities, I suppose, is uh, both Anglicanism and Presbyterianism are, are covenantal. We believe in covenantal baptism. We would baptize children. You've got five uh, amazing kids. Do you, do you see in your own family um, the outworking of the covenant? So just talk a little bit about raising children within the covenant. <laughs> Is there any more subjects that I'm not an expert on that you want to talk about? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, um, it, it's funny, isn't it, how decisions shape your path? So a few years ago, when we were still down in, in Sheffield, we had our first child, and the, and the question comes, um, what, what do you believe about baptism? And, of course, because they were big churches, they were actually, 
of course, that the the official position was um, was as you described the baptism of infants. In reality, there's a great diversity of people in those churches, including those from a more Baptist kind of background. So, in some senses, it wasn't a question that, that I actively wrestled with until the first child came along. You have to make a decision: what are we going to do? Um, um, but yes, that has shaped um, that that has shaped our view, and it's shaped where I've ended up as well, of course. Um, but yeah, I think there's there's huge huge benefits in uh, in understanding your children to be um, covenant children um, uh, and members in that sense of of the church. We don't bring them up as little pagans. We bring them up as little Christians. We teach them to pray the Lord's prayer. Um, uh, we teach them what it is to trust in in Christ and to live for Him and to be part of His His people. Um, and again, I find that you know I can only really speak of our own congregation. Um, actually, where there were no children in recent times before we arrived. But um, it's a tremendously nurturing place uh, to, to bring up children. And in fact, one of my kids said to me the other day, um, in a slightly morbid fashion, as she tends to do, she said, Daddy, if you and Mummy both die, um, I would like to go and live with Chrissy. Um, Chrissy is a member of our church. Mm-hmm. Um, she's from the Isle of Lewis. She's brilliant. Um, so, yes, a great nurturing place to bring up children as yeah, as 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 covenant children and members of the, the body of Christ. Great. Well, we're, we're coming to the end. Just um, a couple of things just to end up with. Um, your training route uh, wasn't the quickest and wasn't the most simple. Uh, I think you would agree with that. You know, yeah. someone once said to a friend of mine, what's Alec going to be when he leaves university? And his father says, an old man. Um, you know, you hopefully will be actually ordained this summer. But you, you, your training, I suppose, is taking on the more kind of the way we do things here, uh, a mixture of on the job and seminary training. Um, just very quickly, how have you found that process? What are the what are the positives? What are the negatives for that model training? I think the one negative would be that it is a challenge to be effectively the, the kind of de facto minister of a church whilst training. Um, that's what we've essentially done. That's been a challenge. Um, but I think there are huge, huge benefits. Um, you know, I had some ministry experience before seminary training as well, but also doing it alongside. Um, I think it informs your studies. Um, You know, in the course of a theological degree, you know, you encounter all kinds of issues and topics. And with the best will in the world, you can't give everything equal attention. And so I think some ministry experience gives you the ability to have some insight, at least, onto what are the things that are interesting, but not essential. And what are the things that you really, really need to work on? It gives you some context for your learning. So I, I'm hugely in favour of uh, combining theological education and ministry experience, you know, be that in ministry apprenticeship programmes. And we're actually in the process of trying to develop a, a programme like that in Burghead so that we can host uh, a minister in training um, in the near future. So I'm a huge fan. I think it's a good development. We need to be careful how we do it so we don't overload people. But we can do that. And I think the benefits are, are enormous. 
Yeah, I think it's so encouraging that although you are a small congregation, you're not located in the central belt or in Aberdeen or one of the big cities, yet you still get a training mindset. Um, you know, as we've been speaking, culture, mindset, they've been things that you've raised often. Peter, um, our time is gone. Uh, I want to thank you so much for joining me this conversation. We wish you every blessing in your work in Burghead. Um, I know that your wife Mora is a doctor, so she will be involved in some of the COVID-19 stuff. Um, and that together you enjoy many years and much blessing in Burghead. David, thanks so much. Really great pleasure to speak to you, as always. 